begin with a, with a prayer. This is booming slightly, a bit loud. Um, when I was, uh, I've said this before, but when um, I was sort of on my faith journey, um, I'd done quite a few Christmases and Easter's and Christmases and Easter's and Christmases and Easter's and a lot of stuff. And for me, God wasn't very real. I sort of believed in him. And it's advice um, that I give to lots of people. Uh, but if God is Jesus, surely it's worth a prayer. And a prayer that I prayed, please reveal yourself. So I just want us to be quiet just for a few moments. And if God really is, as I believe, Jesus, God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we want him as we worship this morning to reveal himself afresh to us in ways that will change our lives. So we pray. God, we know, we know you're listening. We pray that you would reveal yourself afresh to us this morning. For I pray it in the loving and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I spent some quality time recently with a guy um, who was a pastor, is a pastor of a large and thriving church. Uh, he'd been invited to preach in another church. Before he did, he was asked to sign a document agreeing to their doctrines of faith. Some churches, concerned to be doctrinally sound, nothing wrong with that, have all sorts of statements of faith that they want to bind people to. Define maybe who's in and who's out. I suspect this pastor friend of mine was thinking, um, if you don't trust me, why on earth are you inviting me to speak in your church in the first place? He avoided asking or making such a comment. It's instead, he said that he believed in the historic creeds of the church and he hoped that that would be good enough. The church has ancient creeds handed down throughout the centuries. Even with the Reformation and the big changes that happened there, uh, they remained unchanged, and we have that in common uh, with the Roman Catholic Church and other Orthodox churches down the ages. There's three main ones, although now we have lots of different cut-down, summarized affirmations of faith as well that pick up some of the important doctrines that we believe in. The first is, you've heard of this, the Nicene Creed. Um, formulated in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. The second, and maybe some of you can recite this to me, is the Athanasian Creed, uh, which was agreed in the 6th century. Has anyone, by the way, learned that off by heart and does it trip off your tongue? Thirdly, and this is probably more common and used in this church from time to time, um, and thought to be the earliest, is the Apostles' Creed. And um, we'll see sort of echoes of that picked up at baptism and um, 
Matthew 28, the Great Commission picks up some of uh, that Trinitarian formula. Um, whilst the Apostles' Creed um, gives some of the bare bones, I think some of the other creeds go into a little bit more detail. They remind us that we in Christ are part of one undivided Trinitarian church. And together with the Lord's Prayer and Ten Commandments, show us that we have more important stuff in common with other Christians than the stuff that we sometimes focus on that divides us. At the ordination of um, Church of England ministers, among other promises, we're required to affirm and declare our belief in the faith which is revealed in the Holy Scriptures and set forth in the Catholic creeds. The Apostles' Creed echoes the scriptures that we've heard this morning. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed states, For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and was made man. God made man. Those working towards a black belt in theology can make links in the Athanasian Creed, but you need to do that in your own time. As members of Holy Trinity Claygate, what do you believe about God the Father? What do you believe about God the Son, Jesus? And what do you believe about God the Holy Spirit? Now, at the end, we're sort of going to do the creed now, but I'm going to say, we believe, and you're welcome to respond, we believe and trust in him. Do you really believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? We believe. We believe and trust in him. So you get to play as well after I do the next one. Do you believe and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you really believe and trust in Jesus Christ? You don't need much faith, but you do need some. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He'll come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe together. We believe and trust in him. Do you believe and trust in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting? We believe. We believe and trust in him. If you stripped everything away, the trappings of church and religion, what are we left with? What are you left with? I believe I have one God 
and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in, relation, in a relationship of love that we're invited to participate with. I believe that we have a creator God, God the Father, a saving God, the Son, who came to earth, died, and came back to life. I believe that we have an eternal life-giving God, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, God the Son, fully human, fully divine, had a heavenly Father. But God the Father obviously thought God the Son needed an earthly father too and sent an angelic messenger as we've heard this morning to secure this. If you look at your Bibles, Matthew 1 chapter 2 and I think it's on page, there's Bibles in the um, seats, I was going to say pews, they're not pews, they're seats. On page 365, if you want to look underneath and you want to follow, I'll refer to a couple of things um, from the passage. In Matthew 1 verses 2 and verse 6, you can see that Joseph had an impressive lineage traced all the way back through King David to Father Abraham. No breaks in the chain. Some might think that it was of little consequence because God was his true father that Joseph needed to exist. Like, why was he needed at all? Jesus, when all was said and done, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph makes it into the canon of Scripture. We find him in our Bibles, but not so significant to God's salvation plan that he makes it into the creeds that I've just referred to. So he's important enough to mention in Scripture, but my faith doesn't hang on Joseph. I think it's worth celebrating Joseph. There's much to celebrate about him. What do you celebrate about Joseph? He was just and righteous. He was honorable and didn't want to bring disgrace on Mary. And although I sought to downplay his ancestral lineage, his pedigree is significant. Joseph, in adopting Jesus as his son, means that through him, Jesus also becomes a son of David and a son of Abraham. Jesus had Joseph as his guardian and was protected soon after his birth from Herod's murderous threats and escaped to Egypt. On his return home to Nazareth, Joseph brought him up as a carpenter's son. You'll see this in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. And one imagines that he would have learnt the family trade. Reading from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. 
This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Engagement was a big deal in Joseph and Mary's time. Apparently, you got betrothed at the age of about 14 or 15. It was a public ceremony. And about a year later, you got married. Because betrothal was such a big deal, you needed a divorce to break the engagement. Now, some of you here have probably got children or grandchildren of a certain age. And I was discovering this week, uh, through someone who's female, who's a daughter that might remain nameless in this, um, um, that um, going out with people um, is a slightly big deal now. Has, um, has, it, has something changed? So when I was sort of growing up, you sort of went out with someone, you're going out with them, they're sort of both boyfriend and girlfriend. But in these days, you don't sort of disclose to someone being your boyfriend and girlfriend, certainly in the, fa- in the circles of friendship that we're aware of at the moment. Um, you might go out for a little while and maybe have a meal. It could be a gift or something. And there was like a really big deal in asking someone out. Is it just our family that sort of is aware of that sort of thing at the moment? But there's been a sort of change. But let me say it's not as heavy as the Joseph and um, Mary situation. There's no betrothal, as far as I'm aware of. So they're not as good as married just yet. But it's a big deal. Mary and Joseph were betrothed, but not in a sexual relationship. When Joseph found out that she was pregnant, um, he did the right thing by the law and by Mary. He's within his rights to divorce her. And under Old Testament law, she could have been stoned if it was thought that she was not faithful. We read that when Joseph was asleep, he had an angelic visitation. Joseph, son of David... The angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, She'll give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he'll save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up. He did as the Lord instructed. After receiving this dramatic godly counsel, Joseph had a radical change of heart and mind. I think this required courage and a quality of character that's rarely required or seen. Joseph embraces Jesus as his son. And for me, there's echoes with the story of Zachariah and John the Baptist you remember, his name is John. Here Joseph, as guardian, of an earth, as guardian and earthly father, has a word through the angels from his heavenly father and must name his son and God's son, Jesus. It never occurred to me before that Joseph is the custodian, if you like, 
of the name of Jesus. He had a significant role in what he was called. And this name has proved to be quite an extraordinary name. The core message of this passage is that all roots lead to Jesus. The clue to his purpose, according to the angelic message, is the meaning of the name of Jesus, God saves. He'll save his people from their sins. It might have been a common name um, around the time that Jesus was born, but it's become the most powerful name in all of history, the name above every other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, people are healed and demons flee. At the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, prayers are answered and sins are forgiven. Acts 4 proclaims that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given to men by which we must be saved. The people's salvation was not what they expected which was a Messiah to set them free from Roman oppression. Jesus came as a Messiah to liberate them from the power of sin. Whilst Jesus is the key focus, um, one of the subplots of this passage is the role of Joseph, a relatively obscure, unsuspecting character who nearly has his marriage plans wrecked with the shock news of Mary's pregnancy, he needed an angelic visitation to get back on track with God, woke up from his angelic encounter and behaved radically differently from his initial plans. A question. In what ways have you encountered God and changed your minds and plans. In what ways have you encountered God in a way that's made you change your mind and your actions? If we're Christians, we should have some stories about that. Maybe not as dramatic as the Joseph one, but if God is alive in you, we just don't stay the same. Joseph changed his plans to be aligned with God's plan. There's no divorce. He took Mary to be his wife and had no sexual relations with her until after the birth of Jesus. It occurs to me that our nativity scenes and Christmas services would have no power without Jesus, but would feel slightly incomplete now without Joseph. In a sense, we, like Joseph, all have bit parts in the unfolding nativity narrative. And whilst Jesus could have um, pressed on without us, his plans and purposes would not be as rich, I argue, without Joseph and without our presence and engagement. In order for God to use us more fully, we, like Joseph, need to give ourselves fully to Jesus' presence and engagement. Jesus, our Lord, 
are Emmanuel, is our God, and he is with us. A core purpose of his incarnation is to forgive repentant sinners and to welcome us into his holy family so that we cooperate with his heavenly purposes here on earth. Because of his rebirth in us, we get to encounter his presence daily and a part of a real life still unfolding nativity narrative. We believe that Jesus is with us and by God the Holy Spirit lives in us. The promise is that he's our Emmanuel forever. None of us will ever get to play the lead role in this nativity. You might have done it at school. It's recommended that we don't get too big for our boots. Remember that Jesus is the main player in God's unfolding plan of salvation to the world. Joseph could have made life hard for Mary and walked away. After God's intervention, he embraced his calling, regardless of what polite religious society might have thought. I'll leave you with this question. What are you called to embrace in respond to all that Jesus has done and still does for you? Our call from God the Son, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures and set forth in the historic creeds, is... Firstly, to declare our faith in Jesus, the name above every name. Secondly, to embrace our salvation, forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And thirdly, as an act of worship, embrace our commissioning by Jesus to live and work to God's praise and glory. When I was at um, theological college, um, our principal, she was a really brilliant preacher. Um, and we used to ask her how she sort of did her sermons. And she said she used to formulate a collect, it's like a prayer in her mind. And there's loads and loads of collects. She's sort of reasonably Anglican, but certainly well, well, very full of the Spirit. But she used to have this collect in her mind, and she used to go for a walk and just pray the collect. And the sermon would just sort of flow out of her. I've sort of done this in reverse. But I have got a collect. I'd like to read it to you. And it's sort of adapted from... Um, the collect that's um, written in our uh, prayer books for the 19th of March of Joseph of Nazareth. And I've adapted it to fit with my sermon rather than my sermon fit with the collect. But I hope they work together. God our Father, who from the family of your servant David chose Joseph the carpenter 
to be the husband of the Blessed Virgin Mary, to be the guardian and earthly father of your incarnate Son, Jesus, who is the name above all names. Give us grace to follow his example and in faithful obedience to your commands to be distinctive daily disciples of Jesus. Help us through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.